word of prayer. Father, as we open up your word today, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us, that you would nourish us, that you would be our teacher. We ask that you would um, indwell both the speaker and the hearer, and that as we are challenged by these words of doctrine, that we look carefully to see, are these truly the words of God? And if they are, may we bend our heart, our knees, and our mind to the truth. And Father, we ask that you would do this now for the sake of your church, the bride you have given to your son. In his name we pray, amen. About the time that uh, Christopher Columbus was discovering America, Martin Luther began his studies in the university. His father wanted him to study law, and so he began at the university and was doing quite well in his uh, studies for law, but he was really troubled in his soul. He felt this agitation, this uneasiness that one day he was going to have to meet God face to face, and then he would have to give an account of himself before God. On August 17, 1505, Luther decided to leave the university, and he joined a monastery, an Augustan monastery in Erfurt, Germany. He was 21 years old at the time, and he said later that he joined the, the monkhood not so much because he wanted to uh, study theology as much as he desperately wanted to save his soul. According to the Roman Catholic Church, there were different ways by which someone who was seeking God could be directed to God, and Luther, with great determination and force, decided he would apply himself to those different ways. He, he fasted, he prayed, he confessed his sins regularly and gave penance, he performed menial tasks of service. He was so busy engaged in uh, his confessions that he would literally spend hours in the confessional confessing every little sin until finally his superiors had to say, Luther, stop coming for confession until you have something worth confessing about. The Roman church taught that uh, the way to satisfy God's demands for righteousness was by doing good works. But Luther started wondering exactly what good works could I do that God could accept? Because even the, the greatest good work that I could do is really tainted by my sinfulness, my selfish motive. And so he started wondering, you know, what good works could I have? What good works could come from me that I could present before a just and holy God that he would find acceptable? He began to study the book of Romans, and most specifically the text that we're looking at today, Romans 1.17. And it began to dawn on him as he studied Romans that the righteousness that he needed to have in order to present himself before God was a righteousness he could not get. It was a righteousness that no man can really attain, and that really, really frustrated him. In fact, that righteousness that God requires is not a human righteousness at all. And Luther would later call this an alien righteousness, meaning that it's a righteousness not from ourselves. It has to come from another source. But I like that term, and I use it a lot, an alien righteousness. At any rate, guided by this, this uh, new revelation that this righteousness that he needed was not his righteousness, he came to the conclusion that the righteousness he needed was the righteousness that God himself provided. And the way that he would appropriate the righteousness which God found acceptable was through faith. That was a revelation to Luther. And it was that 
awareness that, that began to change everything that he did and everything that he thought. And now, as he started to look through Scripture, and as he compared one Scripture to another, he found that the Scriptures before, which brought him terror, that he could never meet God's requirements, now brought him great comfort. In 1510, so this is five years after he became a monk, and two years after he began to teach at the new university at Wittenberg, uh, Luther was sent by the by his order, the Augustine monks, to go to Rome. And so he's there as an official, he's doing business. So he's sent to Rome in a, doing church business, but he was really excited about the prospect. And though he was coming to Rome to do church business, he was really coming as a pilgrim. And Luther reports that when he comes down from the north, as he's coming in to Rome and he sees Rome in the south, that he raises his hands and he exclaims, I greet thee, thou holy Rome, thrice holy from the blood of the martyrs. And then as soon as he got to Rome, he began to do what a good Catholic does. He makes the round of the relics and the shrines and the ghosts of the different churches. He visited the graves of 46 popes. He, he looked at the, the bones, 80,000 bones of the martyrs, because each one of these things would give you merit. They're, they're, they're positive things. They're, they're works that you can do, which God deems acceptable and appropriate. And he makes the rounds, and he listens to all the superstitious tales that are told him about it. And he's puzzled by, by what he hears and by what he sees. Now, to Luther, going to Rome was... The, the height of his re, religious experience. And he goes there with all of the, the piety that, that someone can imagine, and he's given the opportunity to perform Mass while he's in Rome. And the, the Mass in the Catholic Church is where the priest actually presents the body and the blood of Jesus, and they're being offered up as sacrifice for our sins. It's really the center of the devotion. And so Luther, as a Catholic monk, a Catholic priest, is offering up the Mass in Rome. And he's performing the ceremony with all the dignity and solemnity that he finds fitting of this, this the most high thing that, that can happen. And he's puzzled because while he's treating the, the mass with great honor and solemnity and dignity, the Roman priests, not so. In fact, they were laughing at him. They laughed at his, his German crudeness. They laughed at the slowness with which he performed the mass. One Roman priest um, reportedly ran through the Mass seven times while Luther had only made it through once. And so while he's ripping through the Mass, he yells out to Luther in Latin so that nobody else could understand it but Luther. He yells out, quick, send Our Lady back her son. You know, get on with it. And then there was another occasion when he was reciting the Mass, and he gets to the Gospel portion of the Mass, the mass and there's a priest assisting him who says, passa, passa, which means Get on with it. And so, again, in, in Latin, so nobody else could understand what was going on. And then there's the most famous incident. While he's in Rome, it's 1510, he, he goes to the church of St. John Lateran in Rome. And it's said that uh, in the third century, Constantine's mother, Helen, uh, went to Palestine, and there she found the original steps that ascended to Pilate's quarters. And she disassembles the steps and ships them back to Rome, along with some dirt that comes from Calvary. And they put, the, they put a church there on top of the dirt. And then these steps, which are the steps to Pilate's house, which Jesus would have ascended after he was condemned. And 
you are given uh, years out of purgatory if you will ascend these steps on your knees. I think there's like 26 of them, they're, they're marble steps. And on the way up, there's several places where the steps are stained, and it's said to be the blood stains of Christ. And back then, you could actually ascend the real marble steps, and you would bend over and kiss these blood-stained steps that Christ bled on. Now they're covered over. There's glass over the blood-stained and wood over everything else. But you still get uh, years of remission from purgatory if you will crawl up these steps and you say the Our Fathers as you ascend up on your knees. Luther is ascending the steps. He's trying to earn righteous merit that the church is able to give um, the pilgrims for these righteous acts. He's ascending these steps on his knees, and he keeps hearing in his mind the text that we're looking at today. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And he stands up in amazement at what he's done. He is, he's startled by the superstition of what's been going on, and he turns around halfway up the stairs, and he walks back out, and he's now realizing that the righteousness he needs is not a righteousness that he can earn. It is a righteousness which is given to him through faith. And so he, he walks out of the, the staircase, the Scala Sancta. He walks out of the staircase, and he goes back to Wittenberg, and he begins to develop this theme, the just shall live by faith as the foundation for his doctrine. Now, we often associate the beginning of the Reformation when Luther tacks his 95 theses on the, the castle church door at Wittenberg. By the way, this happens uh, October 31st, 1517, and last Halloween, I taped 95 Reese's on the front of the door. Does anybody remember that? Apparently, nobody got it because I was taping the 95 Reese's on Reformation Day, which was supposedly to illustrate the 95 theses that Luther put on the church door. So that was his, his uh, he wanted to argue, he wanted to have a debate, uh, a scholastic debate about some of the things that were done wrong in the church. But really, that's what we associate with the beginning of the Reformation, October 31st, 1517. But in reality, the beginning of the Reformation takes place seven years earlier in 1510 on those, stair, on those stairs when Luther was ascending up on his knees because that was Luther's Reformation. That's where he realizes that righteousness comes from God and the just shall live by faith. And so he sees now that a man or a woman is not enabled to stand before God on their, on their own accomplishments, no matter how devout, no matter how good they are, no matter what good works they're able to perform. Um, no church, no ecclesiastical authority can grant you enough positive merit to literally make you righteous so that you can stand before God. Not the ecclesiastical councils, not the popes, no matter how vigorously they enforce their rules, the only way that a man or woman can stand before a righteous, demanding, holy God is by faith. He began to share his uh, revelation, and he was writing them down, and he, he published some books. It was um, coincidental that there, these books were now being published in the common language, in his case, German, and a lot of his works were disseminated that way. It didn't take very long. Um, 
1521, before Luther was called before a church court. A new uh, emperor had been elected, Charles V. Um, Luther was called to a church court in the German city of Worms, and so it's called the Diet of Worms. I know that's funny, but that's what it's actually called. The church court was a diet, and it took place in the city of Worms. Not that he was actually eating worms, but they summoned him because they had, it was a setup. They had the, the best of the church councils, the church lawyers there, to convict Luther of heresy. And so Luther comes into the room, and it's basically a town hall, and he walks into the room, and there's a big stack of his books on the table, and the moderator says, are these your works? Luther looks him over and says, yeah. And the moderator insists, will you recant? Will you recall them? Will you deny them now? And Luther had been writing about, like I said, the abuses that were happening in the church. He'd been writing about the individual's rights to, to access to God, that they, they're not bound to come to God through the priesthood. But most importantly, he'd been writing about the doctrine of justification by faith. And so Luther looks at these works, and he acknowledges that they're his, and they ask him, will you recant or else? And Luther stalls for time. He doesn't know how to answer, and so he says, I, I need some time. So they say, okay, come back tomorrow. He comes back tomorrow. The moderator says, will you or will you not retract? And on this, Luther replies, this time without hesitation, since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require from me a clear, simple, and precise answer, I will give you one, and it's this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it's clear to me as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture or the clearest reasoning, unless I'm persuaded by means of these passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the Word of God, I cannot and will not retract, for it's unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. And then Luther looks around the room at these men who are about to convict him of heresy and sentence him to death and utters these famous words. He says, here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. And those words have now resonated through the church for the last 500 years. At this church hearing, he's, he's ordered to take back, to recant, to deny the teaching that he's had, and he can't do it unless they're refuted on scriptural grounds. And basically, he says this. He says, I'm, I'm sorry if you don't like it or you don't agree with it, but God's Word is the highest authority, the final authority, no matter how unpopular it is, it's the only right thing to do. And as we have been studying the book of Romans, and as we will, there have been and there will undoubtedly arise some doctrinal issues that you find very uncomfortable. And I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, but we will stand on the authority of God's Word and not on what is popular or what is preferred. If you take exception to that, then I want you to check it out against Scripture. Hey, this week I've had several people um, come to want to debate with me over what we talked about last week. One of them was very responsible. He had a different opinion than I, and he came ready with Scripture in hand. And so we, we, we discussed our differences of opinion looking at Scripture. I don't mind being challenged like that. In fact, I find it very refreshing because I want, I want to be challenged too. I, you know, as iron sharpens iron, 
so one man sharpens another from Proverbs 27, 17, or someplace like that. At any rate, and I like to be challenged when we're looking at Scripture, because honestly, we can look at Scripture using the same hermeneutics, using the same words, and we can come up with different conclusions, and that's why we should challenge each other using Scripture. I respect that. But I've also been challenged by somebody who would say to me, well, that's not the God I worship. He's not like that. And that gives me a lot of grief because in that case, the God you worship, if he's not the God of Scripture, is a God of your own imagination. A God of your own preference. I'd like you to take your Bible and turn with me to where we left off last week from Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Again, what changed Martin Luther's life was the realization that there's nothing no matter how meritorious that a man can do that will satisfy a holy God's righteous demands. Uh, not just because man's righteousness is insufficient, but because man's righteousness is a different kind of righteousness. And if you were able to gain more of it, it wouldn't be the right kind that God is satisfied with. Barnhouse wrote, it must be understood that every point in our discussions that God's righteousness and man's righteousness are two utterly different kinds of righteousness. They are different in genus, they are different in species, they are different in source, aim, scope, and quality. Anyone who thinks that human righteousness is just a lesser form of divine righteousness, just slightly inferior but moving in the same direction, has failed to comprehend the very heart teaching of the whole of the Word of God. And so we come to this false notion when we, when we think that our righteousness is just like God's righteousness, not just the same amount. We come to the false notion that man has the same kind of righteousness, but just varying degrees. And obviously, we would recognize that there are some people who are far more righteous and some that are far less righteous. And we think about, but we would come to the conclusion that everybody is righteous or has righteousness, just not to the same degree. So you got people like Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot, Pol Pot and Saddam Hussein and Joseph Mengele and Jeffrey Dahmer, and we would say, those guys aren't very righteous. They have a little bit of righteousness. And then, of course, we're more righteous than they are. So we have more righteousness than those dirtbags. But, but still, we would say that there's others that are far more righteous than us. So you've got guys like R.C. Sproul and Billy Graham and Alistair Begg and John Piper. And we'd say those guys are way closer to God than we are. And at the top of the scale, you have God. What I'm telling you is no matter how righteous you are on our scale, it's the wrong kind of righteousness. And God will not accept it. Pick an example right here in our church. Everybody's going to have to admit Dave Tercini is a dirtbag, and he has just a little bit of righteousness. <laughs> and I am way better. <laughs> but I'm not as good as Lawrence Johnson. He's way more righteous than I am. <laughs> but Lawrence Johnson, although he's very righteous, He's not as righteous as God. We would all have to agree with that. You know, Dave's got 5% righteousness, and he needs 95% righteousness lent to him from God. And I'm like 50%, and so God has to finish up the job with the 50%. Lawrence, he's very righteous. He's like a 95%er. He's up there with R.C. Sproul. 
he just needs a little bit of God's righteousness to balance the scale. What I'm telling you is it's the wrong kind of righteousness. And God will not find it acceptable. But all the while we fail to see that God's righteousness is a different righteousness. And if we're going to have the righteousness of, that God requires, it's got to come from an outside source. It's not something that we can get enough of that we can work hard enough and finally ascend to be more like Lawrence Johnson or R.C. Sproul. We can't work enough to make the righteousness of God satisfied. Titus 3.5, it says, This is not by works of righteousness that you are saved, but according to His mercy, through the washing and rebirth, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Romans 4.5, However, to the man who... Th who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Now remember, Luther is not motivated initially by faith. He's motivated initially by fear. He's not drawn to God. He's terrified of him. He's not attracted to God's grace. He's terrified that God is so demanding that he makes laws that he knows we can't live up to. How unreasonable of God to make these laws that no one can live up to and then judge us for not living up to them. That's the anger that Luther has towards God. Maybe Luther's experience isn't normative, but at least it is informative, right? Because, you know, we, Luther was terrified of a holy God. You look at the people around us today. I mean, a typical person in Port Townsend, they are not terrified of God. They are not terrified about the prospects of standing before God in judgment. To them, God is like some kindly grandfather who sits back. He's not all that different from us. He's got a slight smile on his face. He's always there to help out when people are in dire need. It's his nature to love, and so he's always forgiving. And when we mess up, he kind of winks at us and says, yeah, boys will be boys. And we think his righteousness is just like our righteousness, but just a little bit more. And so he's just a little bit more righteous than we are. So naturally, he understands that we're not going to be perfect. He's okay with that. If a pastor suggests that God has moral standards and that he holds humanity accountable, and when we violate those moral standards, we will have to give an account before him. Then the average listener becomes infuriated at not so much the suggestion, but that some speaker would, would postulate and has the audacity to suggest that God is like that and that we should fear God. But it is the ambassador's task to deliver the monarch's message and not to make it more palatable and winsome to the hearer. Romans, this book that we are looking at, assumes that God exists, that he has standards, that all flesh will be called to account for what they do, and that they will all fall short in the day of reckoning. And our hope in our day of reckoning must simply be this, that we know Christ and that Christ knows us. The passage before us today 
Romans 117 is really, it's, it's the theme of the entire letter. When I started to outline Romans, I really wanted to get this far in the first section, the first sermon, but it was just too rich to get through. But in these few words, uh, Romans 117, depending on your version of that, it's either 23 words or 30 words. In these few words, um, Paul expounds what he means to say in the next 16 chapters. And so this is what Luther calls the chief article um, from which all, all other doctrines flow, and that is the article of justification by faith. But in order to get to Romans 1.17, let's take a running start at it. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Um, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, here's the heart of our text. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you're looking at the NIV, I actually like this better. It throws off my word count, however. And the NIV says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I like that. So in the first verses from verse 8 to 15, Paul's establishing his connection with the Roman church. He gives thanks for them. He acknowledges that their conversion is well-known throughout the Mediterranean world. Um, Next, he prays for them. He says, As God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son without ceasing, I mention you always in prayers. Um, He asks wistfully that he might one day visit them in Rome if the Lord would clear the path. Uh, Then he shares shares his hope. He submits to God's will. He says, I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you and strengthen you. Whatever this gift is that he's referring to will come as a consequence of his preaching. He's probably not at this point talking about charismatic or sign gifts, though he will talk about them later, and they certainly are uh, evident in the church. What he's talking about here is something, uh, a spiritual gift that is the consequence of his teaching. Uh, Verse 16, uh, Paul is proud of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed. You know, Paul lived in a world that was hostile to, hostile to the gospel, much like the one that we are in. Christians then, just like Christians now, have been ridiculed and embarrassed and harassed. And they're tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. And I don't have to expound on that because you've been there. You have all expressed shame for the gospel. You have all withdrawn your boldness when the time was called on. So we don't really need to go there, do we? You know what it's like to be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul says he's not ashamed. Why not? Because, he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 
for all believers, Jews and Gentiles, subgroup of Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians, all people need this gospel. They need this redemption that God provides. Now, this phrase in verse 17 starts to get at the heart of what we're want to talking about today. He says, the righteousness of God. This occurs eight times in the book of Romans and always at very crucial, critical junctures in his teaching of his, of his theology. And when he talks about the righteousness of God, he, he means at least or perhaps all of these three senses of God's righteousness. He's, God is uh, righteous in that righteousness belongs to God. He is righteous. And secondly, that God's activity is righteous. He does what is righteous, and you see that throughout all of the Old Testament. And third, he's talking about a forensic righteousness, a righteous standing before a court of law. And when Paul is talking about this, he means all three of these. He's blending all three of these senses of righteousness. But here's the predicament. God is righteous, and you are not. And you can't do anything about it. And God cannot accept unrighteousness into his holy presence without compromising who he is, the righteous and holy God, without denying and contradicting his own character. Now, he's given us a law, which is a, a, a codified standard of his righteousness, and the law that he has given, which describes his righteousness, he fully expects us to fulfill, to live up to, and we don't. And yet he holds us accountable. In order for God to be righteous, it means more than this sloppy sentimentality that he's generally a nice guy and he wants to give us stuff. His righteousness necessarily also has to deal with what he does with justice. He, he deals with sinners and that is how he deals with his justice, which defines his righteousness. Now, we understand that God is a good guy, but we're not just talking about his eternal goodness here, but the assurance that because he is righteous, he will deal with eternal justice. And God is not just, he is not righteous, if he just says, ah, we all make mistakes move on. His justice, his righteousness demands that he deals with a lawbreaker. And that's where we come to see what Paul meant by saying, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. How is God's righteousness revealed? Now, we get the idea, you ask somebody, well, what is God? And they're going to tell you that God is love. Yes, that's true. God is love. But if that's all you think of God, that is sloppy sentimentality. Because in his love, he deals with a very perplexing problem. And we all know what that problem is. And how does God deal with the problem? John 3:16. For God so loved, we got that. We understand the so loved part. That he gave his son. That's how he deals with the problem of our injustice, our unrighteousness. His justice has to be satisfied by the willing offering of his son, the only perfect human who stands in our place, who represents us, our federal head. And God punishes 
his son, so his righteous demands are satisfied. The son who did not commit a crime, who did not offend God's righteousness, is punished in our place. And how do we get that righteousness for our own? God so loved the world that he gave his son. What? That whoever believes. That's all we do. We just believe. What is belief in this case? What is faith? What are we talking about? We're simply talking about that you accept this to be true. All you do to receive the righteousness of Jesus is say, I think that's true. I think God is speaking the truth. I acknowledge that I can't be righteous on my own. I recognize that God has given me this alien righteousness, and he is satisfied by punishing Jesus in my place. And righteousness is important to us because God requires nothing less from us. Now, here's where, in my effort to be a pastor, I really want to inspire you to not have a low view of God, but to have a high view of God. If you have a low view of God, by this I mean that God is really not all that different from us. He's like us. Not that he is exalted in brilliant holiness that no man can approach. That's a high view of God. A low view of God says he's pretty much like us. If he's just like us, then of course he should just accept us. He should just say, I make you righteous, you're forgiven, come on in. And you think about how many people have this low view of God, and as a consequence, they're completely ignorant of their desperate need for Christ's death in their place. And so often they make light of or minimize the necessity of Christ's death on the cross. And that brings us right back to this point here that the righteousness of God is an action that God does through His Son whereby He declares us, the sinner, to be righteous before Him because the righteousness of Christ has been transferred to us. Your guilt has been transferred to Him. God is satisfied. Justice has been met. Our Lord Jesus illustrates this truth um, by telling us a story. Turn to Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. This is a story which is well known to us, but curiously, it makes a lot more sense to us than it did to the original hearers because, like Janet and I were talking about earlier, uh, prophecy makes sense looking back on it, not so much looking forward on it. It's hard to figure it out. So in Matthew 22, Jesus is giving this illustration about the great wedding banquet. And again, these elements should be really obvious to us looking back in time. Matthew 22, 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner my oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest they seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. 
Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the streets, corners, and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find. Notice this, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with his guests. Now, again, most of the elements so far should be painfully obvious to us. God throws a wedding feast. It is the, bri it is, the bride is the church. His son is being wedded to the church. And he invites the Jews, those who are the original invited ones, um, to the wedding banquet of his sons. He sends his servants to the Jews, inviting them to come, but they refused to come. They mistreated the, the messengers. They killed them. And so God sends judgment upon them as a nation. Uh, he, he fulfills this quite literally. 70 A.D., Jerusalem is burned down by an army. To this day, there is no priesthood, there is no temple, there are no offerings, there's no sacrifice. Then God sends out his servants, but this time he invites those who do not deserve to come. They are the original uninvited guests. And who's he talking about? You. And many of these uninvited guests who don't deserve to come, notice good and bad. Some of you derelicts have been invited, and you've accepted the invitation, and you are there at the wedding banquet of the Son. Verse 10, so the servants went into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So goodness or badness is not a condition of being at the banquet. Both good and bad are invited to come, but there is a condition. Verse 11, when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. And the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him out out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, we get the, we get the scheme here. The dignitary throws the party. Whenever that would happen, whenever a, a rich dignitary, a king especially, would throw a party, he provided everything that was necessary. He provided the food. You weren't expected to bring your sack lunch. He provided the drinks. He provided the entertainment. He also provided the, the robes that were suitable for the occasion. In this case, the king is throwing a, a wedding party for his son, he himself provides the robes um, that are required for this auspicious occasion. And that's very necessary, especially on this occasion, because the invited guests don't show up and the uninvited guests are drug in off the streets. They're not prepared. They don't have the right clothing. They don't have the robes of righteousness. And so the king himself provides them. But there, of course, there in that group, there are people of differing degrees of righteousness. They all came from off the street. You're going to find people of all different kinds. You're going to find the Turrasinis and the Lawrence Johnsons in that group. Obviously, some of them are more righteous than others. This fellow is a pretty righteous guy. He doesn't really see that his clothes need to be upgraded. He thinks what he's wearing is perfectly appropriate for the occasion. 
He doesn't need the king's clothes, and perhaps he thinks the clothes he's wearing are actually better than the robes the king has provided. He may be dressed in righteousness, real righteousness, but not God's righteousness. What happens to him? How far will a moral man, a good man, go in the kingdom of God? All the way to hell, except by God's grace. We have to abandon, utterly despair our own righteousness, no matter how lovely we think we are, no matter how good we think we've aspired to be, how splendidly we appear, especially compared to someone else that we think we're doing so much better than. How necessary that we receive the robes of righteousness that God has provided and He has made available to us through the death of His Son. Charles Spurgeon said, No man could put on the robes of Christ's righteousness till he has first taken off his own. Christ will never go shares in our salvation. God will not have it said that He partly made the heavens and then some other spirit came in to conclude the gigantic work of creation. Much less will He divide the work of our salvation with any other. He must be the alone Savior as He was the alone, the alone Creator. In the winepress of His suffering, Jesus stood alone. Of the people, none were with him. No angel could assist him in the mighty work. In the fight, he stood alone, the solitary champion, the sole victor. So, too, thou must be saved by him alone, resting on him entirely, counting thine own righteousness to be but dross and dung, or else thou canst never be saved at all. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our righteousness our righteous acts are like filthy rags. What's he talking about? You need an alien righteousness. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. We receive this righteousness by faith, by faith alone, by simply agreeing that God is telling the truth. When you finally come to the point where you realize you cannot stand before God in your own righteousness, and you agree with God saying, I need a righteousness not my own, and you have provided it, you have stepped from death into life, from darkness into light. That's the faith I'm talking about, not some deed, not some act, not some meritorious good decision that you made, simply the ability to say, God is speaking the truth. I know that. That's what faith is. That's what belief is. We are saved by faith, and we now live by faith, and one day we will finally be saved by faith. God's grace and not our works. If you're a rotten person, it's not all that big a deal to say, yeah, I'm a rotten person, I need, I need help. The problem is when you see that you are not a righteous or a rotten person, when you think, I'm doing pretty good. 
Maybe you think in that case all you need is just a little bit of help from God. The point I'm trying to make is your righteousness is not just less than what God requires. It's a different kind of righteousness that God requires. And anyone who comes to the wedding banquet without the robes that he has provided will soon find themselves outside in the dark. No matter how nice you are, and some of you are much nicer than others, you are still separated from God because of your sin, and God has to deal with the sin. I think sometimes about that verse, you know, where Jesus said, that, you know, unless you're like a little child, you can't come to me. And I wonder, you know, what is he talking about like a little child? But then I think as I meet older people, like McKinley over there, you know, that we're just children, but what's happened through our lives is the longer we live, the more obvious our depravity becomes, the more hardened we are by our sin, the more encrusted we are with our sin nature. And unless something happens to change your condition, that is the course that you have set for eternity. Harder and harder, more depraved, more depraved, more crusty throughout all eternity. The consequence of sin is death. And whether we're talking about the physical death, with this, which is separation of the spirit from the body, or we're talking about spiritual death, which is separation from the spirit from God. The consequence of sin is death. And when you finally realize your hopeless condition, God will show you the amazing truth that he is satisfied with the death of his son in your place. He is both the just and the justifier. Donald Barnhouse said, the sinner, whether wicked or good in man's definition, unjust or just from the human point of view, can become righteous, just, justified only by an act of God. God's grace provides this righteousness as a gift, and it's his own righteousness. It's not merely a righteousness, righteousness which God approves, but a righteousness of which man is incapable. Since it's God's own righteousness, as he declares over and over again, so the just shall live by faith. And that means that the man who has been justified through the Lord Jesus Christ shall live by faith. Now, when that truth finally dawned on Martin Luther, he passed from the realm of fear into the realm of faith. And he wrote, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God. I was angry with him because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. When then, by the Spirit of God, I understood these words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Henceforth, I saw the beloved and holy scriptures with other eyes. The words that I had previously detested, I began from that hour to value and to love as the sweetest, most consoling words in the Bible. In very truth, this was to me the true gate of paradise. This is what the Bible says. The just, the righteous shall live by faith. Here I stand. Let's pray.
I pray, first of all, God, that as we develop these themes from Paul, that we exalt you, we lift you up, that you are not common, you are not lowly, you are the exalted high God. I pray that our thoughts of you are fitting of who you are and that we are changed, transformed, that we love you because of your love for us, which was displayed in your willingness to send your son to die for our transgressions, and that we will simply embrace that by believing it's true and expressing our faith that you are the trustworthy, true one. God, we ask you to please cause these words to ruminate in our heart this week and change us how we live and how we think. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.